Part ten of Ultima Fool. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Ultima Fool by Mac Reynolds. Part ten. Ronnie was irritated by her know-all air. He tapped the book he'd been reading with a finger. They don't control the government. Avalon's got a three-party system. Any time the people don't like the government, they can vote in an alternative. That's an optical illusion. There are three parties, but each is dominated by the fifty families, and election laws are such that, for all practical purposes, it's impossible to start another party. Theoretically it's possible. Actually it isn't. The voters can vary back and forth between the three political parties, but it doesn't make any difference which one they elect. They all stand for the same thing—a continuation of the status quo. "'Then you claim it isn't democracy at all?' Tog sighed. That's a much-abused word. Actually, pure democracy is seldom seen. They pretty well had it in primitive society where government was based on the family. You voted for one of your relatives in your clan to represent you in the tribal councils. Everyone in the tribe was equal so far as apportionments of the necessities of life were concerned. No one, even the tribal chiefs, ate better than anyone else. No one had a better home." Ron said snappishly, and if man had remained at that level we'd never have gotten anywhere. That's right, she said. For progress, man needed a leisure class. Somebody with the time to study, to experiment, to work things out. He said, We're getting away from the point. You said, in spite of appearances, they don't have democracy on Avalon. They have a pretense of it. But only free men can practice democracy. So long as your food, clothing, and shelter are controlled by someone else, you aren't free. Wait until I think of an example. She put her right forefinger to her chin thoughtfully. Holy smokes, she was a cute trick. If only she wasn't so confounded irritating. Tog said, Do you remember the state of California in Earth history? I think so. On the west coast of North America. That's right. Well, back in the twentieth century Christian calendar, they had an economic depression. During it, a crackpot organization called Thirty Dollars Every Thursday managed to get itself on the ballot. Times were bad enough, but had this particular bunch got into power, it would have become chaotic. At first no thinking person took them seriously. However, a majority of people in California at that time had little to lose, and in the final week or so of the election campaign the polls showed that thirty dollars every Thursday was going to win. So a few days before voting many of the larger industries and businesses in the state ran full-page ads in the newspapers. They said substantially the same thing. If thirty dollars every Thursday wins this election, our concern will close its doors. Do not bother to come back to work Monday." Ronnie was scowling at her. "'What's your point?' She shrugged delicate shoulders. The crackpots were defeated, of course, which was actually good for California. But my point is that the voters of California were not actually free, since their livelihoods were controlled by others. This is an extreme case, of course, but the fact always applies." A thought suddenly hit Ronny Bronston. "'Look,' he said, "'Tommy Paine. Do you think he's merely escaping from New Delos, or is it possible that Avalon is his next destination? Is he going to try and overthrow the government there?' She was shaking her head, but frowning. "'I don't think so. Things are quite stable on Avalon.' "'Stable?' he scowled at her. "'From what you've been saying they're pretty bad.' She continued to shake her head. Don't misunderstand, Ronnie. On an assignment like this it's easy to get the impression that all the United Planets are in a state of socio-political confusion. But it isn't so. 
A small minority of planets are ripe for the sort of trouble Tommy Paine stirs up. Most are working away, developing, making progress, slowly evolving. Avalon is one of these. The way things are there, Tommy Paine couldn't make a dent on changing things, even if he wanted to. And there's no particular reason to believe he does." Ronnie growled. "'From what I can learn of the guy, he's anxious to stir up trouble wherever he goes.' "'I don't know. If there's any pattern at all in his activities, it seems to be that he picks spots where things are ripe to boil over on their own. He acts as a catalyst. In a place like Avalon, he wouldn't get to first base. Possibly fifty years from now, things will have developed on Avalon to the point where there is dissatisfaction. By that time, she said dryly, we'll assume Tommy Paine will no longer be a problem to the Commissariat of Interplanetary Affairs for one reason or another. Ronnie took up his book again. He growled, I can't figure out his motivation. If I could just put my finger on that. For once, she agreed with him. I've got an idea, Ronnie, that once you have that, you'll have Tommy Paine. They drew blank on Avalon. Or at least, it was drawn for them before they ever arrived. The Section G agent permanently assigned to that planet had already checked and double-checked the possibilities. None of the four-man crew of the U.P. spacecraft had been on New Delos at the time of the assassination of the God-King. They and their craft had been light-years away on another job. Ronnie Bronston couldn't believe it. He simply couldn't believe it. The older agent—his name was Jeru Bulchand—was definite. He went over it with Ronnie and Tog in a bar adjoining U.P. headquarters. He had dossiers on each of the ten men—detailed dossiers. On the face of it, none of them could be pain. "'But one of them has to be,' Ronnie pleaded. He explained their method of eliminating the forty-eight employees of U.P. on New Delos. Bulchin shrugged. "'You've got holes in that method of elimination. You're assuming Tommy Paine is an individual, and you have no reason to. My own theory is that it's an organization.' Ronnie said unhappily, "'Then you're of the opinion that there is a Tommy Paine?' The older agent was puffing comfortably on an old-style briar pipe. He nodded definitely. "'I believe Tommy Paine exists as an organization. Possibly once originally it was a single person, but now it's a group. How large I wouldn't know. Probably not too large, or by this time somebody would have betrayed it, or somebody would have cracked, and we would have caught them. Catch one, and you've got the whole organization, what with our modern means of interrogation.' Tog said, "'I've heard the opinion before.' Jeru Bulchand pointed at Ronnie with his pipe-stem. "'If it's an organization, then none of that eliminating you did is valid. Your assassin could have been one of the women. He could have been one of the men you eliminated as too young, someone recently admitted to the Tommy Paine organization.' Ronnie checked the last of his theories. "'Why did Section G send six of its agents here?' "'Nothing to do with Tommy Paine,' Bulchand said. "'It's a different sort of crisis.' "'Just for my own satisfaction, what kind of crisis?' Bulchand sketched it quickly. There are two Earth-type planets in this solar system. Avalon was the first to be colonized and developed rapidly. After a couple of centuries, Avalonians went over and settled on Catalina. They eventually set up a government of their own. Now Avalon has a surplus of industrial products. Her economic system is such that she produces more than she can sell back to her own people. There's a glut." Tog said demurely. So, of course, they want to dump it in Catalina. Bulchand nodded. In fact, they're willing to give it away. They've offered to build railroads, turn over ships and aircraft, donate whole factories to Catalina's slowly developing economy. Ronnie said, Well, how does that call for Section G agents? Catalina has evoked Article Two of the U.P. Charter. No member planet of U.P. is to interfere with the internal political, socio-economic, or religious affairs of another member planet. 
Avalon claims the Charter doesn't apply since Catalina belongs to the same solar system, and since she's a former colony. We're trying to smooth the whole thing over, before Avalon dreams up some excuse for military action." Ronny stared at him. "'I get the feeling every other sentence is being left out of your explanation. It just doesn't make sense. In the first place, why is Avalon as anxious as all that to give away what sounds like a fantastic amount of goods? I told you, they have a glut. They've overproduced, and as a result, they've got a king-sized depression on their hands, or will unless they find markets. Well, why not trade with some of the planets that want her products? Tog said as though reasoning with a youngster, Planets outside her own solar system are too far away for it to be practical, even if she had commodities they didn't. She needs a nearby planet more backward than herself, a planet like Catalina. Well, that brings us to the more fantastic question. Why in the world doesn't Catalina accept? It sounds to me like pure philanthropy on the part of Avalon." Balchand was wagging his pipe-stem in a negative gesture. "'Bronston, governments are never motivated by idealistic reasons. Individuals might be, and even small groups, but governments never. Governments, including that of Avalon, exist for the benefit of the class or classes that control them. The only things that motivate them are the interests of that class.' "'Well, this sounds like an exception,' Ronnie said argumentatively. How can Catalina lose if the Avalonians grant them railroads, factories, and all the rest of it?" Tog said, "'Don't you see, Ronnie? It gives Avalon a foothold in the Catalina economy. When the locomotives wear out on the railroad, new engines, new parts must be purchased. They won't be available on Catalina, because there will be no railroad industry, because none will have ever grown up. Catalina manufacturers couldn't compete with that initial free gift. They'll be dependent on Avalon for future equipment. In the factories, when machines wear out, they will be replaceable only with the products of Avalon's industry." Bulchin said, "'There's an analogy in the early history of the United States. When its fledgling steel industry began, they set up a high tariff to protect it against British competition. The British were amazed and indignant, pointing out that they could sell American steel products at one-third the local prices, if only allowed to do so. The United States said no thanks. It didn't want to be tied industrially to Great Britain's apron-strings. And in a couple of decades, American steel production passed England's. In a couple of more decades, American steel production was many times that of England's, and she was taking British markets away from her all over the globe. At any rate, Ronny said, it's not a Tommy Paine matter. Just for luck, though, Ronny and Tog double-checked all over again on Bulchin's efforts. They interviewed all six of the Section G agents. Each of them carried a silver badge that gleamed only for the individual who possessed it all of which eliminated the possibility that Payne had assumed the identity of a Section G operative, so that was out. They checked the four crew members, but there was no doubt there, either. The craft had been far away at the time of the assassination on New Delos. On the third day, Ronnie Bronston, disgusted, knocked on the door of Tog's hotel room. The door-screen lit up, and Tog, looking out at him, said, "'Oh, come on in, Ronnie. I was just talking to Earth.' He entered. Tog had set up her Section G communicator on a desktop, and Sid Jake's grinning face was in the tiny, brilliant screen. Ronnie approached close enough for the other to take him in. Jake said happily, "'Hi, Ronnie. No luck, eh?' Ronnie shook his head, trying not to let his face portray his feelings of defeat. This, after all, was a probationary assignment, and the supervisor had the power to send Ronnie Bronston back to the drudgery of his office job at Population Statistics. Still working on it. I suppose it's a matter of returning to New Delos and grinding away at the forty-eight employees of the U.P. there." Sid Jakes pursed his lips. "'I don't know. 
Possibly this whole thing was a false alarm. At any rate, there seems to be a hotter case on the fire. If our local agents have it straight, Payne is about to pull one of his coups on Kropotkin. This is a top-top secret, of course, one of the few times we've ever detected him before the act." Ronnie was suddenly alert, his fatigue of disgust of but a moment ago completely forgotten. "'Where?' he said. "'Kropotkin,' Jake said. One of the most backward planets in UP, and seemingly a setup for Payne's sort of troublemaking. The authorities, if he can use the term applied to Kropotkin, are already complaining, threatening to invoke Article One of the Charter, or to resign from UP." Jake looked at Trog again. "'Do you know Kropotkin, Li Chang?' She shook her head. "'I've heard of it, rather vaguely. Named after some old anarchist, I believe.' "'That's the place. One of the few anarchist societies in UP. You don't hear much from them.' He turned to Ronnie again. "'I think that's your bet. Hop to it, boy. We're going to catch this Tommy Payne guy or organization or whatever soon, or United Planets is going to know it. We can't keep the lid on indefinitely. If word gets around of his activities, then we'll lose member planets like Christmas trees shedding needles after New Year's.' He grinned widely. That sounds like a neat trick, eh? End of part 10